welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by stem cell biologist, science communicator, and PhD researcher Naomi Kobelik. Naomi. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. That's my, my pleasure. Now, I, I want to ask you about stem cells first mm-hmm. up. I feel like that, that's your thing, right? Yeah, I love stem cells. They're really, really cool. I remember a while ago, stem cells were uh, Armageddon. They were the worst things that ever happened <laughs> Very to taboo. us. Very <laughs> taboo. Yeah, but I feel like people have kind of forgotten about them. I it's, mean, it's a total flip. I think there was absolute like taboo, stem cells, terrible. And now everyone's like, wow, stem cells, the golden cure. They're amazing. <laughs> An absolute flip, but they are they are really, really cool. Did people just get bored or or just used to the idea? What happened? I guess it's the way everything's been portrayed. Because before it was definitely all like, you know... I mean, growing up, all I could think about is those South Park episodes about embryonic <laughs> stem cells. Like, that's just sitting in my head as we're talking about that. Whereas now, if you hear about stem cells, you hear them on the radio, you know, to cure, I don't know, goddamn everything and the laws in australia are changing around that to try yeah. and restrict what can be advertised for which we'll delve into later but um yeah you just there's a lot of promotion about stem cells and the potential that they have and is this currently just potential at the moment how much of it's actually in action how much is actual treatments going on yeah well i'll just briefly step back so i can explain a little bit differently so the reason why people are so interested in stem cells is because of two main things mm-hmm. they can self-renew so they can just keep on multiplying and multiplying and multiplying And they can also turn into different kinds of cells. And because there's so many different kinds of stem cells um, that you can get, so, you know, adult stem cells, embryonic stem cells, here, there, everywhere, um, there's a lot of interest in their potential. And potential is a really important thing. So because they can regenerate and self-renew, they could potentially be used to repair damaged or broken tissue. Mm -hmm. And that's really awesome. But I think it's very important when we have conversations about stem cells that we discuss realistic potential Mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot of excessive hype around stem cells and I think that really starts to exploit people's hope and then make them not so excited about the potentials that we really do have. Yeah, I feel like they've almost been adopted by some, I don't know, alternative medicine circles where they're miracle cures for aging and paralysis and everything there's like you know facials or if you want to have it jabbed into your spine like go for it (laughs) that's the crazy thing because when we talk about these unproven stem cell treatments so stem Mm. cell treatments that have little to no evidence of safety let alone you know efficacy Mm. um you'd think that they're offered in what people often term stem cell tourism so where they're like you know people fly overseas to countries that have either less law enforcement or really lax law enforcement around stem cell therapies. Um, but they're actually really common right here. Mm. So we have over 70 um, predatory clinics offering unproven stem cell treatments in Australia, wow. which is absolutely insane. Yeah, <laughs> It's just it's, it's a lot of regulatory loopholes that people are um, exploiting, and it's quite frustrating because I understand the real potential of stem cells, and it is exciting. Mm. But it makes me hesitant to talk about it because I don't want to give it, be giving people false hope. Yeah, yeah, I mean, is there harm that can come from these predatory? Yeah, hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. So um, the stem cells I work with specifically are stem cells that you get from fat. Mm-hmm. So um, people get you know a little bit of liposuction, a little bit off, <laughs> um, and you extract straight from these tubes of warm, thick fat. <laughs> It's gross, but fun. (laughs) Um, And those exact stem cells were actually used over in Florida on three women who had macular degeneration, and all three of them went blind from the procedure. Um, So there's definitely cases of things going wrong, but it's frustrating because 
typically if we introduce any new treatment, you know, you have clinical trials. We're mm. actually monitoring what's happening and seeing and reporting all the negative results. But with things like this, they aren't clinical trials. It's pe- people. It's almost like pay-as-you-play clinical trials is how they're marketed, but they're not actual clinical trials. They're clinics offering treatments that people are paying for. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily know what's going wrong because we don't know if there's proper follow-ups. We don't know what's being documented. It's not like there's big research groups actually I mean, there are research groups investigating this, but there's a lot more going on that isn't being documented properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you would assume if there's stem cells involved, yeah. these people must be doctors. <laughs> yeah, they, they are. So as long as you're a doctor, legally, you can take stem cells out of someone and jab them back in pretty much. Which is very frustrating, but that's the way the law currently sits. Yeah. So you're working on these stem cells you get from fat. Mm-hmm. What are, what are they doing there? Why do we have stem cells in our fat? There are stem cells everywhere. It's really okay. cool. You have them like there's some inside your dental pulp in your teeth. Um, but it's because they're just there to regenerate and create all these different cells for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm particularly interested in stem cells from fat predominantly because they're just easy to get to. You know, <laughs> getting stuff from people's bone marrow is hard. It's painful. Whereas stuff from tummy fat, no one really complains too much about liposuction. <laughs> <laughs> so you never have to do the liposuction yourself. You oh, mean. hell no. I, I can barely handle looking at the tubes. It's almost like you can think of it as like a really thick, hunky cheese pasta sauce with like a little bit of red in there, which is yeah. like tomato, but you know, blood and fat. It's gross. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's put me off. And so you just jump online, order a, a liter of fat and then... <laughs> we actually don't need there. that much. So I probably work with portions that are about like 30 to 40 mils. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We have volunteers specifically for this. So depending on which part of my project we're looking at, we recruit them differently. Um, they go to a clinic that we actually collaborate with and the surgeon will suck some fat out. Um, and because he doesn't drive, he hops in an Uber and he Ubers me these tubes of fat and I get them while they're still warm. Oh, um, but it's really important because once we had, he had like a setback another surgery and because of that wait time, the fat had started to solidify mm. and it made it so much harder for me to extract the stem cells from it. Um, so yeah, I just I get Ubered these warm fat tubes. <laughs> you can't do what they do in Fight Club and go <laughs> running the bins at the and back of plastic so surgery much. clinics. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can barely handle the little tubes I get here. <laughs> so once you've got your little tube of fat, you extract the stem cells out. What are these stem cells then? In, in our own bodies, what are they differentiating into? What, yeah. what are they waiting there in the fat to do? So adipose stem cells or stem cells from fat are technically mesenchymal stem cells. So they are multipotent. I'm just jamming words at you. But essentially, <laughs> there are stem cells that are either pluripotent, meaning they can turn into heaps and heaps of different things, mm-hmm. or they're multipotent, meaning they can turn into a few. Yeah. Um, so they typically turn into things like adipocytes, so fat cells okay. or bone cells. And it really depends on where they are in the environment that they're in. Um, And that's actually how we can change cells that we extract. So once I isolate my cells, I grow them. And you can think of it almost like a big plastic flat water bottle Mm -hmm. and they stick to the bottom of it. So you pour what you feed them on. So it's a media and has all different growth factors and whatnot to keep them happy. And then you pour it off when you want to change the media and feed them again. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like, it looks like red cordial. And because your cells are stuck down, they just stay there while you change the liquid over them. It's like they're sitting at the bottom of a pool. 
All right. And then how are you actually getting them to differentiate and seeing what yeah. happens? So to make sure that they're actually stem cells, I do a few differentiations. So for example, adipocytes or bone that I just mentioned. And that involves just changing that liquid that's on top of them. All so right. we buy specific media from companies that make it for us. Thank God. Um, because making it yourself can be really <laughs> tricky. Um, I know my supervisors did back when they used to work on this in their PhDs. Mm. You have to make everything up and measure it all out. I just buy it from a company. It comes pre-bottled, pre-labeled. <laughs> just pour the specific one on, pour another one off. And yeah, it's really, really simple. So and you really literally cool. give it a particular diet and it yeah. differentiates into a fat cell. Yeah, and, and it, a different it makes one sense and... because depending on the environment that the cell is in in your body, it has different cues to change into different cells. Mm-hmm. We're essentially controlling that in a nice little little swimming pool of cells. <laughs> okay, so in principle, that's how it would work in a stem cell treatment. You put stem cells in a particular part of the body presumably they would respond to the environment they're in and start to become what they should in that area? Theoretically, yeah, but I think it's really important um, when we talk about stem cell therapies, many things to focus on. Like, for example, how are you getting it to that part of the body? Mm. How do you know it's going to stay there? Mm. Does it have the right factors? Are you even putting in enough cells Mm -hmm. for it to actually induce a response? Um, And there's just so many... Like, when I see a lot of the stem cell therapies on the market, it's, it's pretty crazy because you know, they don't even talk about how many cells are going into you, how mm. they're putting it into you. And it's like, what if they what if they go somewhere else and they cause some differentiation in some random... There was a woman actually who had um, stem cell treatments for her face. And this is not well documented and it's not published, mm. um, but it has been spoken about because it wasn't properly followed up because the proper procedures weren't in place. But apparently she had these bone differentiations in her face. Like, it's just crazy. <laughs> It's, and it's not surprising when you're working with cells that can turn into essentially anything yeah. given the right environment. It's essentially like getting a, a, a tumor in a way. You just get yeah. these cells starting to grow in places they shouldn't. Yeah. Um, there was actually a gentleman who ended up having this big mass. And he had, and I might be quoting this slightly wrong, um, but he had <laughs> stem cells put into um, his spine. Mm-hmm. And he went to four different places to get this because they weren't working. And often with a lot of these unproven stem cell treatments, if it doesn't work, you're encouraged to go again mm. or try again because it may take multiple times or however they want to pitch it. Um, but this one gentleman went to four different places, spent a ton of money, all of them were abroad, um, and he had this huge mass. And again, things like this aren't surprising. As I mentioned, these stem cells have the ability to grow and grow and grow. Mm. Like The only other cells that grow like that are cancerous cells, and it's why we really need to think about how what these cells are and how they work. And then, of course, they do have potential with therapies, but it needs to be monitored properly. Mm. Yeah. So you've got your cells in a dish. Yeah. You're feeding them different things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do you tell then if they've differentiated? Do they start to look like little blobs of fat? It depends on what you're working with. So I... um, you tend to have a look down the microscope first of all, right, while they're still in the dish. And you can tell by the way they change shape. Yeah. So they pull in some little bits, they get bigger in some parts, depending on what type of differentiation you're doing. Um, but a lot of the characterization I do is by proteomics. So I study oh. the proteins inside of my cells. And I really, even if we take a step back from differentiating them, I'm really interested in just understanding the cell themselves. So I look at the proteins inside of my cell. I look at all the proteins stuck to the membrane of my cell and also the proteins that are secreted by the cell. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I want to characterize all of these different proteins is because it really is like a snapshot in time of exactly what's going on inside of that cell and exactly what proteins are mm-hmm. being expressed. Okay. And it really frustrates me that we still don't already know this, but it's exciting that I get to do it. <laughs> well, yeah, it is one of those things you think we, we know what fat cells are. We think yeah. we know what they're made out of. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So there's, there's different, as these things are growing into being fat cells, there's different proteins being expressed at any one time or what sort of thing do we um, see? Well, I only really do the um, differentiating them into different cell types to make sure that what I'm working with are in fact the right population of cells. Mm-hmm. So we just end up looking for a few specific markers. I don't investigate that too thoroughly. I'm really more focused on understanding the cells before we differentiate them because that's what All we right. use in different therapies. Yeah. yeah. This is stuff you're doing for your PhD yeah. research. <laughs> How's it all going? <laughs> Is that, is, that, is that a question? Are we allowed to ask that question? Yeah, sure. I think we ask PhD students that. I mean, it's it can be frustrating, um, but that's science in general. You yeah. do something and it fails, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and it yeah. constantly fails, and at some point it works, and that's amazing, and it's yeah. exciting. Um, but I think that's why I love science communication so much, because it's rewarding and motivational mm. and it really helps me get through those real slumps when I'm in the lab for like, you know, weeks on end doing the same experiment that just keeps on failing. <laughs> well, yeah, what is it about science communication? Why, why are you compelled to do it? Um, I think I, I would love to tell a lovely story about why I kind of stepped into it. Um, I know why I'm compelled now, but I honestly <laughs> didn't have some huge passion for science communication. Mm. I honestly just stumbled aimlessly and then found myself there. Um, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good example of how things aren't always linear. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of, I did three minute thesis and that was fun. And I got asked to take that talk to FameLab. Mm-hmm. So I did, that's with the British Council. They're amazing, they give the best training. It's the first time I was ever <laughs> trained to be a science communicator Um, and that was really nice because most of the stuff you do in your PhD you're just left to do it on your own and work Mm. it out so it was really nice having formal training Um, that was the state finals I made it to the national finals which (laughs) was really fun and then next minute I was on Discovery Channel and ABC so that was really cool (laughs) what did you do there (laughs) for people that haven't seen your work Um, so with Discovery Channel I was on Dr. Carl's Outrageous Acts of Science and Mm -hmm. Dr. Carl is just so cool he's just really (laughs) supportive and I don't know being on a show like his was really really exciting and Discovery Channel's just the production they have you know we filmed 10 episodes in two days Mm. insane (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that was just really really exciting I they gave me a title they're like what did be called like a a biology expert and I was like oh I guess so I, I guess I can be that yeah sure yeah and it was it was really fun because I guess being a PhD student, you really think of yourself as being at the bottom of the ladder. Mm. And then I realized when I look outside of my little pond and I'm actually having a real world view, I actually am kind of a bit of a biology expert. Yeah, so, well, we're definitely trained to... Uh... We're researchers <laughs> by nature. <laughs> well, yeah, we're, we're trained to not get our egos up, essentially. Exactly. <laughs> but when you look at the years of study and work experiences that we have, yeah, the, the only thing second guessing is is ourselves exactly and it was really fun like i got to in i mean i just kind of thought about the shows i used to watch as a kid and i could just imagine like little me sitting there seeing all these science shows on discovery channel and just getting excited by it and um dr carl's outrageous acts of science is a very long name it's very like (laughs) poppy and fun so it's definitely something you'd end up watching with your family Mm. um and then what i made with abc was sciencey so it was really short videos that we launched over the internet um, that kind of just explained fun science questions mm-hmm. like why do we laugh and things like that <laughs> and it was just something I really enjoy watching so yeah. it was great being able to create content like that. Yeah we had Dr. Carl on the podcast a couple of months ago yeah. 
And yeah, he what you see on TV is what you get. He oh God, that's a it. Non-stop. He knows so much. The first time I met him, I went over to ABC for a radio interview. And he was like, it's so lovely to meet you, Naomi. Do you know why this glass is blue? And I was like, what? And he starts explaining to me why the glass is blue. And I was like, wow, you're so amazing. <laughs> and then after a few hours, I was like, this is insane. Like your brain is just, his brain is full of so much knowledge. And it's just ticking 24-7. But I always really appreciated that he did seem to want to foster other people. When he does, when he starts he, just everything he does, he will share with you and say, all right, this is how I do it. He Feel really free likes to learn from me. Scientists. Yeah. He gave me his business card and he was like, you know what, Amy, if you have anything, just call me. Yeah. I laughed and I was like, are you kidding? You have to pick up the phone and be like, hey, Dr. Carl. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah, no, seriously, you can just call me. I haven't done it yet, but when I have some exciting science news, I definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my experience is when I first rang him. I forgot to, I left him a voicemail and yeah. forgot to leave my phone number. <laughs> and so when I finally talked to him again, I got this big lecture about, all right, no, whenever you work in the media, make sure you always give your phone number in a voicemail, no, no matter who you're talking to, <laughs> your best friend, blah, blah, blah. And I thought I was getting lectured to you. But after a while, I realized, actually, no, he actually cares. He does. <laughs> he, I think, like, Dr. Carl has this real attitude, which I find in most science communication, which is the more the merrier. Mm. Um, and I think that's why I love Psycom so much, because it's just not as competitive as regular science is. <laughs> like, when I'm in academia and in the lab, at the end of the day, everyone wants to, you know, beat someone to a publication or beat this lab to something. And it's, mm. it's just very frustratingly competitive environment whereas in science communication like especially with science instagram for example there's the stem squad there's the sci community mm. and they're these lovely collaborative groups that support you they promote you and it's it's really refreshing and really nice yeah i mean i feel like i've noticed in science communication there are always people that if they're given an opportunity they're just as likely to turn around and go, you know what, I'm not your best person for this, you should talk to this guy, or I can't do it, here's another person that I know, and I hope I'm right about. I love that though, it's it's so exciting, and I think it's because we all want to get to know each other and figure out our own little areas, and you find people that fit in and mix Mm. well together, it's really, really enjoyable, I love it. I don't (laughs) know what I'd do if I hadn't found science communication, because I think it's really gotten me through the tough parts of my PhD, Yeah. Oh, yeah. How long have we got for the podcast? (laughs) But it it does sort of keep you sane whenever you're a scientist. You spend a lot of time staring at a microscope or reading papers or (laughs) writing or anything like that. Getting out and talking to people and getting being... And this sounds stupid, but being an extrovert yeah. is actually very refreshing. It is. <laughs> and it's really exciting sharing science. So whether I'm finding out something new from someone or sharing something new myself, or maybe I'm asked a question and I'm like, God, I don't really know that. So I start looking into it more. Mm. I just find that it's always really fulfilling and just, I know I've said it a million times, motivational, really motivational. <laughs> Do you enjoy like the, the glitz and glamour of, like you said, going over to Discovery Channel and seeing all the production set up and... I mean, the production setup was one green room with me in it. (laughs) (laughs) But still, like, it's it's, it's all these resources and and people It's crazy having, like, six people concerned about you on screen. Like, someone doing sound, someone filming you, someone directing you, someone fixing your hair. And I was like, I... I've, I, I don't know what to do with all of this attention. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was doing something for the BBC once, and they kept just referring to me as the talent. <laughs> and the talent will walk in and do this. Oh, you think I'm talented? Oh, thank you. <laughs> I got over at ABC once, 
they made a joke because they were like, you know, Naomi, you haven't thrown your weight around much. <laughs> you're allowed to because you're the talent. And I was like, the what now? <laughs> I mean, sure. Thank you. <laughs> I get, well, I would have had to, you know, say one of us took off in science communication. I would have had if we ever reached that point where we became... I don't know, aware of our, I don't know, celebrity or whatever you'd call it. We would some, you know, I think it's all good. of a sudden think we're important. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, my PhD works me straight down to points. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it balance then with doing your PhD? Does it distract you much? Does it take time away from research? I think finding the balance initially was really hard because... Mm when I realized how much I love science communication. And because all the opportunities I had so far, with the exception of FameLab and Three Minute Thesis, they weren't opportunities that I created. You know, I didn't ask to be on ABC. I didn't ask to be on Discovery Channel. Mm. They found me. And I wanted to do more of it. And I just didn't know how to, how to do that other than just making myself known. Mm. Um, so I definitely, I think my balance got out of whack at the beginning when I tried to put in a little bit of time into creating a profile. So for mm. me, that was just making an Instagram profile, posting on Twitter a little bit more frequently and starting up a website. So at least if you Google me, you can find me. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm definitely starting to find that balance again now, but I think it's because I've gotten to the groove of what I want to do and I can set aside time and focus on that. And I think the good thing about science communication as well is if it gets too consuming, you can always just stop mm. and focus on your research for a bit. No one in the community there is going to be like, oh no, do less science. <laughs> Everyone's totally fine with it. So I think it's just finding what works, what works well for you and managing it properly and just not getting any too caught up. But I mean, I would have spent so much time just aimlessly trolling through social media anyway. Now it's just all science-based and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I am terrible at social media. That's definitely not my, my psychom <laughs> medium. What do, you, what do you like about it? How did, why does it work for you? Because um, you're, you're the closest person I know to an Instagram celebrity. You know? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, that's, that's bad. That means you really are not Instagram very much. No, God no. Um, I think you look at the two, the two main, I mean, like there's Facebook, but no one really uses Facebook. So let's talk about Twitter and Instagram for science communication because I feel like Facebook is more social and family and that yeah. type of aspect. So when you look at Twitter, it's great because you'll find academics um, but it's kind of everyone yelling and getting angry, <laughs> mm. which is great. Like I get really caught up in these big discussions and these big issues and it's really present and that's amazing. Um, whereas you flip over to Instagram and it's more like happy, happy science. Yay. Look at this cool <laughs> science thing. Oh, look at this science thing over here. Um, and it's very different because on Twitter, I will connect with individuals, whereas on Instagram, we do have our community. So I mentioned before, um, the Psy community and the STEM squad, and I'll put them up, I'll put links to them in my Insta story later if anyone's interested in finding them. (laughs) But they're two really good communities. So the STEM squad is really focused on bringing different women in STEM together. Mm -hmm. So there's a base group that we have on Facebook, and it's open to all ages. So it's just a chance to ask questions and join up with people and really just air any thoughts that you have. Mm. Um, whereas the sci community is a big community of scientists that really promote one another's work and we try and do different collaborations together. And I, I love both aspects of you know Twitter and Instagram, but I think I really do love Instagram because of the community that it builds. Mm. And I've met so many people through it. Um, so you'll be talking to Kerry later, I believe. Unfortunately not. She's no. jumping on a plane. Our schedules get all mixed up. Well, she is awesome. One um, day, uh, for podcast listeners, we might hear <laughs> yeah. an interview with Kerry Brenner. 
but uh, not, not well, this time. We met through Instagram, which is great. Wow. Or Samantha Yamin, we met through Instagram as well. Actually, that's a lie. We met in real life. But then we became friends on Instagram. <laughs> and it's just, it's just great having that support network there for you, people to chat with and just bounce ideas off. I mean, this is a little bit too much information, but let's go for it anyway. I went to the bathroom. My pee was pink. <laughs> I was horrified. Episode title right there. <laughs> 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 the first time I was like, I'm just ignore it. The second time I started freaking out and I don't know, I messaged my friend. I even sent her a picture because I was like, I don't know what to do. Why is my pee pink? <laughs> and then I eventually realized it's because I had this huge beetroot juice. And I came down with this cold about like maybe three weeks ago. Um, and I was like, I'm going to drink some juice to make myself better. <laughs> and I posted this story onto my Instagram stories. And before I even got to the end, I had different scientists messaging him being like, oh, it's probably probably from the beetroot. And, you know, my, my friends who's doing her PhD, her boyfriend does a PhD on this. And we're all discussing the, the chemistry behind it and trying to work out how much of this is necessary to make your pee pink. And then one of the other girls messages me and she's like, oh, that same thing is also in um, Nesquik strawberry milk. So we're doing some calculations <laughs> to work out how much beetroot juice is the same as Nesquik strawberry milk. And if their pee is going to go pink, we already have three recruits. And just silly, fun <laughs> science, things like that. It's It's... So wait, okay. you, you didn't actually post a picture of your pink pee? You didn't see no. Right? Just had to, to, <laughs> you had to keep some things but, private. Yeah. But we did. We um, one of the girls. So there's a few of us who are trying to trying to make this into a real science experiment, <laughs> and they found little um, pee color charts for pink pee oh. to see how like pink your pee is. <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually a clinical thing used for other stuff? I mean, it's probably for it something to... more serious than drinking yeah. beach or your juice, but we found the chance. Okay, fair enough. Good color grades. I mean, if it's going to be, we have N equals three, it's almost a real beetroot pea study. It's a, it's a community engagement story. It's, yeah. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's great. It's a very comfortable environment that you can just chat about whatever. And I don't know. I don't know anywhere else. I couldn't do this in real life. I couldn't just sit around in the tea room with my friends and be like, hey, my pee's pink. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I should give Instagram over a try. Because, yeah, yeah, I definitely don't work in the Twitter sphere. And I think probably, probably a lot of it is because of just the amount of negativity and the amount of, uh, you know, questioning and arguing with things that aren't really arguable. When we're the two about of them science. balance out really well. Like, yeah. I feel like I get a little dose of Twitter and then I'm like, back to happy Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> gonna work on my selfie game yeah <laughs> well there's also scientists who selfie it's a hashtag where all different scientists selfie with their research and stuff it's really cute it's a real thing all right. i've never been one for selfies but we'll, we'll, we'll make you we'll a see. scientist who selfie you will be one now <laughs> so you've had this wonderful journey with this these science communication uh, initiatives which you say you sort of fell into yeah. but i feel like for most people and probably even for yourself, whenever you do science communication, it's of your own compulsion and you put your own effort into it. Yeah. So what, what's next for you if you're going to strive uh, to be a science communicator and have fun with it? What's your what's your projects going to be? Um, well, because I realized a lot of the jobs in science communication, you don't get they don't promote it. They don't ask you. They just I mean, sorry, wrong way around. They don't put out job ads. They just yeah. ask you. So you can't really apply for it. Um, I wanted to promote myself further and I love my research. So I do a lot of research on multiple sclerosis as well, which I didn't go into. So mm-hmm. disease modeling there. Um, and I'm, I really like being involved with the multiple sclerosis community because they are a very strong community. And 
I wanted to try and do something that combines my research, the multiple sclerosis community, and of course, science communication. Mm. So I created a little series called MS Made Simple. We yeah. haven't launched it yet, but we filmed all but one episode because I lost my voice and it's nearly back to normal, um, where we just kind of break down the science behind multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. So for example, multiple sclerosis is a chronic demyelinating inflammatory disease. You lost me already. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so frustrating that we expect this baseline understanding. Um, and you know, there are millions of people with multiple sclerosis, not to mention their friends, their family. I think it's important to have easily accessible, simple videos that explain that basic science so they mm. can actually understand what they're going through, have educated discussions with their, with their professionals when they go in to see someone. Um, so I've created those videos and to make it part of my PhD, we're actually investigating how this digital media improves learning if it does, we're really hoping it improves learning. <laughs> um, and also how participants self-regulate their learning. Right. Um, but I haven't got that promoted anywhere yet because we're still, I have to get all the questionnaires done and put it through ethics before I can put it out. So these are going to go up online? What's the plan? Yeah, so we're hoping to launch them all online and we'll get participants in and they'll basically do a questionnaire, watch a video, do a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. I think there's like six videos in total. So it's quite, it's quite easy and I think I really like it because... It's, it's engaging and it can be really frustrating to be a part of that multiple sclerosis community and not feel like you're contributing to it because it's, you might not have the money to throw at research. Mm. Um, and there are amazing things like Multiple Sclerosis Research Australia has things like um, Kiss Goodbye to MS or the MS Walk and Fun Run. And I participate in things like that because mm. it's fulfilling for me. But I think this is something else that people can also participate in and they know that they're actually contributing towards improving the community. Hmm. So what are you researching with MS? Um, so I create a disease in a dish. So okay. I use those stem cells I was talking about and I use them to model multiple sclerosis. So you can think about it as if I have two different dishes, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is my normal healthy patient samples um, and I do all that proteomic analysis I was talking about where I study their proteins. Then I do the same with my multiple sclerosis patient samples. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a big difference. So I've done a preliminary study on this. It's actually why I started my PhD in this project. Um, and we really try and characterize and understand that difference between the two to get more insight into multiple sclerosis itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not perfect. I mean, obviously, it's hard to get pieces of brain tissue from patients. Mm. <laughs> um, it's hard to create an accurate animal model of a disease that we ultimately don't understand that well. Mm. Um, and this is just another way to try and complement all the different models that we have. So it's a cellular model, which has its limitations. I mean, it's, it's one layer of cells. It's not a whole complex organ, mm. um, but it still provides unique insight. And I think it's really important that we get people excited about this kind of basic primary research because yeah. it's this research that really creates all of these new big opportunities. And there's so much focus on, you know, getting things into patients. And I understand that because we want immediate outcomes, but it's important that we don't lose sight of how vital that primary research is. Mm. So remind me what MS is again. <laughs> um, a chronic demyelinating inflammatory disease. <laughs> yes, no so, myelin. Yes. That's, I heard that word in there. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, but no, it is, it is a particularly complex disease and it affects people in different ways depending on which part of the brain is actually affected. But what I really found, I guess, most confronting about multiple sclerosis is that most people are diagnosed around their 30s mm. and then they live typically to an average of 65 years. Mm -hmm. So this is a disease you live longer with than you did without it. Yeah. So that, I find that's quite unique compared to most other diseases. And I think that's why there is such a big, strong community out there. Mm. Um, and that's really why I want to get more engaged in 
educating them about multiple sclerosis itself. I mean, I know, I know my research is definitely contributing to that, but I think it's really important that I do stuff outside of the lab as well because it's all good and well that I understand my research will have downstream outcomes, but I want to do something now to help as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it is one of, another one of those things. It's strange that at a fundamental level... We don't know what's going on with MS and what yeah. the cells are doing and how they're behaving. But that's honestly with most neurodegenerative diseases because, mm. because it's just so hard mm. to understand the brain that well. I mean, we barely understand the brain that well in the first place yeah. in a normal healthy state. Um, but I don't think that's something to be like, you know, oh, wow, that's really disappointing. We don't know that. It's, it's actually really exciting because we knew so little and our knowledge is constantly growing. Mm. It's why I was so interested in studying any neurodegenerative disease when I started my research because it's like you're on the cusp of something new all the time and there's all this new information feeding in and it's just a really exciting time for research and that's really exciting for all the patients too. Mm. So where to after a PhD? Research, psychom or a bit of both? Um, definitely a bit of both. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try my hardest to stay in academia as long yeah. as I possibly can. Um, I think it'll either break me or I'll break it. <laughs> Good. It's a good attitude to have. Yeah, I'm break really... It, you know, break academia. Yeah. <laughs> There's just lots of things about academia that I find quite frustrating. Um, just even little things like to become a successful mentor, so someone who's actually, you know, a lab head or something, mm. you have to be a successful researcher. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good mentor. And I think it's really about introducing all those different parts about, you know, Obviously, to be a successful researcher and produce publications and Mm. great research and get funding and all of that is obviously important. But I kind of want to try and introduce more aspects to that. So, you know, creating students that aren't just being channeled into academia, that's really important because there aren't enough jobs for the PhD. Mm. There's not enough jobs for me, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's just important to give people multiple skills. Um, and I love science communication. I'm not letting it go. I'm really sticking my foot down. Plus, mm. people are going to want to hear more from Dr. Kobelik than just Naomi <laughs> Kobelik, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the extra arrow in your quiver, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good point. It's, it's good to hear you've got that, uh, you know, that realization early yeah. on is that there are many ways to make great research happen. Doing research is kind of just one of them. It is. <laughs> being a good person and being a good mentor and exactly. collaborator is just as important. It really is. And I think that's what I'd be looking forward to the most. Um, mm. I, I don't know. Just, I kind of like give a shit without meaning to a lot of the time, if that makes sense. Like I feel like <laughs> I just... are a nice person. Yeah, I, I think I just care about too many things all the time. So I think I would be a really great mentor because I'd be really invested in building the person and their long-term career. Mm. Um, And I think I actually teach a subject now, career management for scientists. And I think it's really nice because I'm learning a lot of those skills and you connect with students on an individual basis about creating those careers and having multiple opportunities and looking everywhere and collecting all the skills that they need. So I would love to actually put what I've learned into application with PhD students because we don't really get much exposure to that. Yeah. And I love research. Like I I love research. I actually (laughs) like writing grants, which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish I had that problem. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all a bit of fun. But yeah. science communication isn't going anywhere. I'm going to gonna stay a part of it as long as I possibly can. That's both of them. I want SciComm and I want academia and I'm going to shove them together into a little ball and see how far it rolls. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> well, well, we'll keep an eye out for these MS Made Simple yeah. videos. It should be fun. 
and, and good luck with, with writing up the PhD. Oh, yeah. Mm, don't <laughs> remind me of my faces. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, people want to find out more, you have a website to yes. check out, which is www.naomikorbelik.com but I'm going to spell my name because it's weird N-A-O-M-I-K-O-H-B-E-L-I-C great (laughs) and you're all over social media on everything yeah you can find me everywhere (laughs) just at Naomi Kobelik right Mm -hmm. that's me (laughs) alright well thanks so much for coming on the podcast (laughs) and thank you guys for listening check out more podcasts at nc3science.com if you enjoy what we're doing make sure to tell a friend about us you can follow us on social media at Institute Science. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.